Happy Halloween. Welcome to Spook Culturally Deprived, our spook cast. This is episode number 43 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about Nightmare on Elm Street on your Don't Fall Asleep podcast. I'm Andy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. And we were supposed to be joined by an extra special guest, but due to personal reasons, she was unable to join us. So it's just Matthew and I talking about Nightmare on Elm Street today. So sadly, we don't have a super fan, um, but we'll soldier on. I will say, Freddy vs. Jason is a film I've given a 10 out of 10 to in the past. No, I know that's not the film we're going to talk about, but it's probably the best I can do. Well, we wouldn't have Freddy versus Jason without this film first. So. Exactly, yes. Okay. I have a really strange history with this film. I, I think I've seen all the films in the franchise, but this film I have a memory of because my sister told me about it when I was nine, something along those lines. She was in her uh, early teens, and I remember her telling me about watching it and explaining this whole thing of this is pipe, and when the pipe burns you, you know he's nearby... And, and the the detail of it, I was like, oh, that, that sounds really scary. But I think I because I got the plot of it or the idea of it, I never actually watched the film in the traditional, as you grow up and go through your teen years, you watch you know, films like this on sleepovers and stuff. So I think I didn't watch it until I was in my 20s or something. And I was like, oh, yes, this is the film that I've heard so much about. Okay. I, I reached out to my sister to ask her about watching it because she did have that traditional experience of, of watching it. And she... um. Uh, I got, got a message from her. It, I'd been to Alison's birthday sleepover. Her parents had done a beautiful barbecue. We played rounders in the garden. Then we went to choose the films. The cool kids, who probably had who had probably seen it before, pushed for Nightmare on Elm Street. I didn't want to watch it. I knew it was going to be scary for me. So we settled down to watch this film. Now as an adult, I realise how ridiculous the whole premise is. The acting was dreadful. The costumes and sets were cheap. But as a 15-year-old, it, it was terrifying. I hated Fred, Freddy's voice and the mask, and as you know, I don't like jumpy films. The music built it all up, and the constant screaming of the girls. What I can tell you is that Alison, me, and a couple of the other girls ended up in the garden with her mum. I will oh. never forget watch, watching that film and going outside into a beautiful day out of the dark room and feeling relieved. I never watch films like that now. Uh, I had no idea there were so many in the series. <laughs> so, thank you, Madeline. I say my my memory of this is is just hearing this thing going. Oh, that's that's really quite scary. Yeah. And then never actually watching it until years later and going, oh yes, it is that film. I'm glad she said how old she was because I was going to ask because we had so many people on Twitter telling us about their experience watching this movie, and so many mm. of them were under the age of ten when they saw this movie, and I don't understand that. I don't get it. Completely understand why it scarred them for life if they were that young. <laughs> mm. I think there is something about wanting to watch scarier films or adult films when you're younger, but also, yes, very small kids. I have that now sometimes when you go to the cinema and you see kids in a film, you're like, oh, I'm not sure they should be here. But also, I'm not a parent, so who am I to say? And I'm certainly not those kids' parents, so <laughs> I'm definitely not going to say to them. You know, that's totally fine, but I'm totally going to judge any parent who let their seven-year-old watch <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm sorry. I can't not judge that parent. I don't care if it was the 80s where we didn't have to wear seatbelts and all of that crazy stuff. <laughs> so you're speaking, like, specifically, Jan, your mum. <laughs> oh, no, she was at a party, wasn't wasn't it? Her friend's mum. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There were a couple other people um, 
you know, who said it. And I, they all kind mm. of mixed up in my head because all I was thinking was, who let children watch this? I don't understand. Does it make sense? Yeah. Like, yeah. I am 34 years old and I didn't want to watch this. <laughs> now. <laughs> um. So you didn't want to watch it now. How come you have never watched this? Because Mandy doesn't do horror. Well, you do in 2017. Apparently I do. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I worked really hard my whole life not to watch things that would scare me. And it probably still stems back to that, you know, traumatic, scarring Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom thing. <laughs> because that was so scary. Yeah. Yeah, I just didn't do scary ever. Um, even even in high school, I didn't want to watch scary movies. I, I did watch a few, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but not super jump scare, crazy monster scary. I don't even think I've seen The Exorcist. Uh, Crap. You've probably seen all the good bits. People are going to freak out that I said that. Okay. Uh, you, you've probably seen all the, the like good and interesting bits. It's one of those things that is on so many clip things and referenced. Yeah, I've seen her head spinning around and um, her vomiting green slime. Mm. That's all I really know about it. So an interesting thing about this movie is that I have always heard it referred to as Nightmare on Elm Street. But the actual title of this movie is A Nightmare on Elm Street. When you say the interesting thing about this film. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, one of the interesting things about the film. How about that? Oh, okay. Yeah, okay then. (laughs) I think that's interesting. But this is... This has whetted my appetite for the interesting things. (laughs) (laughs) Shut up. So, A Nightmare on Elm Street is a 1984 horror film written and directed by Wes Craven. The film was considered an instant commercial success and met rave reviews. This movie had a significant impact on the genre, spawning a huge franchise that has spanned decades. It was inspired by a series of articles Craven read in the L.A. Times in the 1970s about a group of Southeast Asian refugees who died in their sleep after suffering terrible nightmares. He also drew heavily on his own life experiences when creating the film's iconic villain, Freddy Krueger. The monster was named after a childhood bully of Craven's named Fred Krueger. And I just have to say, I feel really bad for that kid now. (laughs) (laughs) You make your bed, you lie in it. Craven began writing the screenplay in 1981 and pitched it to several studios. Disney was the first studio to show interest, but Craven declined when they wanted him to tone down the content. Eventually, the independent New Line Cinema gave the green light. This would be the studio's first film, as previously they had only distributed films rather than making their own. Robert Eglund was cast as Freddy because Craven was impressed with his willingness to go to the dark places in his mind. He said Robert understood Freddy. The Motion Picture Association of America required two cuts to lower the rating to R. In the UK, the film was released both theatrically and on home video uncut. The US would not see the uncut version released until 1996 when it was released on Laserdisc. Mm. Though some sources indicate those cuts were only released as deleted scenes in the extras on that Laserdisc. And supposedly, from sources that I read... Even now, all DVD, digital, and Blu-ray releases in America still use the R-rated theatrical version, but I'm not convinced about that because I'm pretty sure the version I rented from Amazon did have the extra 13 seconds. Both of the cuts were basically blood. It it was extra blood um, when Tina died. 
And she fell from the ceiling onto the bed, and all the blood splashed up onto Rod. Okay. Um, they they cut the shot of the blood splashing, and they cut uh-huh. a lot of the blood from Glenn's death, the geyser mm. of blood. And mm-hmm. I feel like I'm pretty sure I saw all of the blood they wanted me to see there. So at some point, I think it got upgraded. But okay. I think it's interesting that... 13 seconds had to be cut so the Motion Picture Association of America would allow it to be shown with an R mm. rating. Mm. America's so weird. Yeah. It makes me think of uh, Kill Bill Volume 1. And to change the rating, he turned the part of the sword fight in black and white. Right. And they were like, oh, that's fine. Okay, cool. Yeah. Doesn't matter <laughs> if there's a lot of blood as long as it's not red. <laughs> Apparently. Oh, well. Uh, that makes me think of a video game called Carmageddon, which is kind of bad. Maxi, you're, you're driving around, running people over and smashing cars up and stuff. And it was going to be banned or X-rated or something. So they changed the people and the red blood into green and made them zombies. And then and then released a patch so you could turn it back to being red. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Well, I know that there are several people listening to this episode who refuse to watch this movie. And so if you're not actually familiar with what it's about, uh, it's about four teenagers who are stalked by a villain named Freddy Krueger in their dreams. And if they die in their dreams, they die in reality. So, Matthew, how did you watch this movie? I found the DVD in a local shop, so I watched it on DVD. How did you watch the movie? I had to pay to be scared and rented it on Amazon. Hmm. Yeah, not available on streaming media anywhere. Well, I mean, I streamed it from Amazon. Well, yeah. yeah but yeah. I had to free, pay for it. <laughs> yeah. Free with Prime or Netflix or Yeah, anything. no, not yeah, available yeah, anywhere. Yeah. I checked okay. all of them. And, I, like, I was even hoping that it would be available, like, in a seven-day free trial of, like, the Cinemax <laughs> channel on Amazon. But, no, it was only available to rent. So, yeah, I did. Okay. Uh, what were your expectations for it? I expected to be terrified. I was horrified that I had to watch this. Um, I tried not to watch it by myself, but those plans fell through. And so I ended up watching it on a Saturday afternoon with all the lights on, all the blinds raised with the sun streaming in. So it was not dark. (laughs) And I got through it all by myself. You giant wuss. (laughs) I will own that. I I will absolutely own that. What what did you know about... Freddy Krueger and the Nightmare films in general before watching? All I knew about Freddy Krueger was that he had finger knives and a messed up face. Okay. Literally, that's it. I had no idea what the plot was. I assumed it had to do with dreams because it's called Nightmare, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. And at some point, I had heard that this was Johnny Depp's film debut, and so I assumed he had a larger part than he actually did. Okay. Um, What's your experience of particularly the creator of this, Wes Craven? I have seen all of the Scream movies. Mm. And he did this one really random non-horror movie back in 1999 called Music of the Heart, which I have seen. That's it. Okay. Heather Langenkamp, are you aware of her other work? I didn't realize that she had any other work because as far as I can tell, she's really only ever been Nancy. Even her current website right now is IamNancy.net. Though I did actually go look at her filmography, and it looks like she's done a lot of, like, small TV stuff. And apparently she was one of the alien creatures in Star Trek Beyond Darkness. 
but I would never have known that if I hadn't looked at the picture to figure out which character that was. Yes, her and her husband have created a visual effects company. And I, I think that's probably where the link to Star Trek comes from. Maybe she's done some of the alien effects, uh, particularly as they've gone oh, a bit okay. more practical uh, in recent years. The the thing I particularly noted about her was she did a number of visual effects for Cabin in the Woods. Oh, that's cool. The Joss Whedon horror. So that it's makes kind of sense. Two, two degrees of Buffy separation, but... <laughs> Yeah, no, but that makes total sense, though. I mean, if most of her career was in horror and mm. then she went on to do effects, it makes sense that she would do horror effects in other movies, yes. especially in a movie that was, you know, as gory and bloody <laughs> as yeah, Nightmare yeah, on Elm Street was. <laughs> I mean, there was blood everywhere in both of those movies. So, uh, What's your experience of other films like this? Okay. Here's where I show how little experience I have of horror. I didn't expect Tina to die. Okay. In hindsight, it's super obvious. I mean... Yeah, she has sex. (laughs) Well, I mean, even that... It's not just that. It's, you know, she's the pretty blonde in the opening. Just like Drew Barrymore in Scream. You know, my... Okay. My initial assumption was that she was going to be the main character. And it... I wasn't thinking about it from the formulaic tropiness of horror movies. Mm-hmm. And, and now, after I realized that she was going to be the first one to die, it, it totally clicked in my head. But watching it from the beginning, that's not what I expected. Okay. Yeah, because the film really does set it up to follow her for a period. And then it gets a bit weird how we're not watching them have sex and hearing Johnny Depp and Nancy. We're with them in their point of view for it. Right, right. Like this, this is a strange way to pre- treat your protagonist. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, there there was a whole lot of wrong going on with that sex scene. So, hmm. okay, an a nightmare on Elm Street. Did you enjoy it? I don't think enjoy is the right word. Is it okay. possible to enjoy something that's scary? Really? Did you? Yeah. What What word would you use for it? I don't know. I don't think I have enough handle on the English language to, to come up with a word that describes how I felt after this movie was over. Like, I I had a physical reaction to this movie, and and I didn't like it. I, I didn't like the way I felt when the movie was over, which is weird because individually the moments in the movie weren't that scary. But mm-hmm. when you put them all together and you kind of – feel the emotion one right after the other that you were feeling when you watched it or at least that I was feeling when I watched it like I wasn't super okay at the end of this movie I didn't feel (laughs) happy I wanted to go watch something else right away Um, I believe I tweeted instantly that I declare that for Halloween next year we are doing cat videos for PCD (laughs) So that, I mean, could, there's not really a word for that, but that's where I was. We we could do proper horrors like Catwoman, <laughs> Batman and Robin. Hey, we could, because I've not seen those either. Mm. You know what? Neither have I. There are a few scares in it, but it's right at the end. There's two major jump scares. Did they, did they actively make you jump? Can you be more specific about those two examples? As as she's fighting Kruger, there's a bit where he, I think, jumps up behind the bed when, when we think everything's okay. Uh-huh. And, and, and that is genuinely quite surprising. And then I think in the happy sequence 
or just before the happy sequence, there's a bit where he bursts through and attacks her mum. Okay. The the first one, my thought in the thought stock was holy fucking shit. <laughs> That's what I typed, like, after I calmed down. So, yes, him jumping. Because, oh God, the way they played it, they played it like it didn't work, that she didn't bring him out of the dream because everything was silent and quiet. And she had, like, 30 seconds to get up and get out of bed and turn on the light. And then all of a sudden he jumps. So, yeah, my reaction <laughs> was upsetting. <laughs> the second one, not so much because I was really annoyed at the way they were portraying the ending. Okay. And so I, I probably was slightly startled, but I'm glad that he took her. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't really know where that leaves me. Oh, yes, it comes through the door, doesn't it? And then she becomes a doll and instantly gets taken through the door. It's a bit weird. One of the lesser good effects. It's good that you started with the jump scares because one of the things that I noticed about this movie is that it it tries to fit in all of the different kinds of scary movies into one movie. You Mm. know, oftentimes you have movies that focus on gore, like the Saw movies. Or you have movies that focus on specifically jump scares. Um, and I, I don't have an example of that because I don't like jump scares. <laughs> I try not to watch them. <laughs> or you have those movies where you're just like really, really super suspenseful the whole way through because they're building you up with that music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a really good example of that was House on Haunted Hill. I When I watched that movie in the theater the entire time I had both arms on on the armrest like gripping them just waiting to be scared out of my mind waiting to jump it was horrifying my heart was beating the whole time because of the music and then it was over and I realized they never actually scared me they just made me think they were going to and Nightmare on Elm Street put all of that into one movie yeah and it freaked me out yeah, they they even do monster stuff with the the weirdness of his arms and stuff coming out of his mouth and the weird telephone and right him cutting off his fingers or that mm. one scene that that there's no reason for it he lifted up his sweater and like slashed his belly so that like <laughs> yeah green goo and maggots start falling out there was no reason for that because I don't remember if that was with Tina or Nancy, but the character he was scaring didn't scream. And so I don't know if that was really just for the benefit of the audience because they wanted to be gory. I don't know. Maybe. Just a point on jump scares. I'm on the website wheresthejump.com. This film is rated as having 11 jump scares. The highest is 32 in The Haunting of Connecticut 2, Ghosts of Georgia. I will never watch that movie. No. Highest one I think I've seen, Evil Dead 2 is in there with 27. Freddy vs. Jason with 24. Yeah, nope. I bet you I haven't seen any of the movies in the top 10 on that. Oh, no. Yeah, not at all. We've got Scream with 19. Scream 2 with 19. Okay, well, I have seen those. Yeah, there you go. The interesting thing about... It was either Tina or Nancy not screaming at the gore is that neither of them really screamed in their dreams they were running or like getting stuck against a wall and they wouldn't scream until it was right before they were about to wake up and i thought Mm. that was weird because if i were in that position i would be screaming my head off the whole time and it just struck me as odd that the characters weren't screaming when i expected them to be 
Did you notice that? No, I think I didn't pick up on it, but I think it. I would probably put it down to your point that this is trying to be quite suspenseful at times. So when it's suspenseful, they're they're trying to be quiet to evade him, and then they scream when he's actively attacking them. Right. Maybe that's what it's for. Well, that makes sense, especially considering that Freddy Krueger was on screen for less than seven minutes in the whole movie. Yeah, true. (laughs) Which shocked me when I read that, because when you think of this movie, you think Freddy Krueger. And, I mean, I honestly had no idea who any of the other characters were in this movie. I didn't know who the actors were. I still don't know who the actors are, except for Johnny Depp. But... (laughs) I had no idea because when people talk about this movie, they talk about Freddy Krueger and he was hardly in it. The idea of him was in it, but specifically the character wasn't. And I think that's interesting and it's definitely a way to create suspense and scariness from suspense. Yeah. It's the right way to use your monster to, to, to not show him. Right. And, and from what I understand, they changed that a lot in the later Freddy movies. Hmm. Uh, in later movies, he had a lot more like, jump scares, more one-liners, and like more dialogue later. Yes, because exactly like you say, he's the thing you come out of this film remembering. So they're going to double down on that in the next one. Right. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about Freddy then. There is a whole story in this over why he's doing this. He's not just a monster. You know, it's not um, alien or something where they're just being attacked by a creature doing its thing. There is there is a, a thing behind it of. He was killed by the parents, and he's now coming for children in their dreams and so on. Did it add anything to you having a, a an actual backstory in here? No, it actually made it worse, honestly. Mm. Because they still don't explain what he is or how he's doing what he's doing. And so it it really felt more like a throwaway line to me than... Okay than reality because part of it was the frustration that I had of her parents didn't believe her. Her mother is telling her the story for the first time ever. Her mother has mentioned the word Fred Krueger to, to Nancy, Hmm. but Nancy has already told her this man's name, what he looks like, that he has finger knives and the mom doesn't believe her. And it doesn't make sense that she doesn't believe her because she gave her all of this information before she could possibly know it. And so it made me angry. Yeah, the cover-up, if, if there is supposed to have been a cover-up, it doesn't really work given that they're talking about something that seems to fit together with what they've experienced. Right. Parents are stupid, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's actually what I typed. I said the mm. parents are deeply stupid in this movie. <laughs> the, uh, the, the South Park Syndrome. The kids are smart. The parents are stupid. Yeah. Well, and it got it got worse towards the end because Nancy calls her dad and is like, I'm going to go get this guy. And she knows he doesn't believe her. And she's like, but you have to come knock the door down in 20 minutes. And he's like, yes, yes, you go to sleep. You go to sleep. And it's very clear that he doesn't believe her. He is not going to be there in 20 minutes. Hmm. And Nancy goes and does it anyway. And then she's locked in the house with the bars on the windows and she can't get out (laughs) and she's screaming for her life and the cop is just watching her for like five minutes and then he's like oh honey everything's fine it's gonna be okay and then he's like hmm maybe i should go tell the lieutenant and i was losing (laughs) my mind screaming at the tv in that moment because these adults are just so stupid yeah 
very much so. It is part of this because this is one of the, you know, grandfathers of horror. So it can do stupid things, and now we expect a bit more. Maybe. I mean, it, this is a movie from 1984, and, and so things mm. were definitely different in movies. I mean, the, the special effects and everything were less than what you would expect now. The yeah. acting was pretty terrible. And so I think you do kind of have to give it a little bit of a pass because it's an early pioneer in horror, I guess. <laughs> yeah, basically. So other than Freddy, there's a few other characters in the, in the film. Um, there is Nancy herself. There's Nancy's wonderful, dreamy boyfriend, Glenn. Right. Dreamy. Well, the thing I read is that was why he was cast. Apparently, Wes Craven's daughter described him. Daughter? Yeah. Girlfriend? Someone daughter. associated with Wes Craven. Yeah. It was his daughter, yeah. She, okay. He was the dreamier of the two who <laughs> they had narrowed it down to, so that's why he got cast. I will say the first thing that I think I typed about him was... Uh, when they were hearing things in the backyard and he went out to, well, they all went out to figure out what the noise was and they were kind of like cowering behind him. (laughs) My thought was, I would not be hiding behind scrawny Johnny Depp here. No. (laughs) (laughs) Because... Well, he he might, he might turn around and throw his phone at you and punch you, so. (laughs) Ooh. Allegedly. (laughs) Allegedly, right, Yeah. (laughs) But I will say I had a lot of frustration with Glenn, not only just because he seemed to be a character who was useless from the very beginning. He proved mm. to be a character who was useless from the very beginning because he had one job. Yeah. And that was to stay awake and watch Nancy and make sure that she didn't do anything crazy in her sleep while she was dreaming. Mm-hmm. Dude falls asleep and they almost die. Yeah. You had one job, Glenn. Come on. Yeah, everyone's a little one-dimensional. They're just a bit crap. Yeah, they all are, honestly. Even they tried to make Nancy more interesting, but she really wasn't. Hmm, what do I class it? Nancy is interesting. Yeah, because no one gets any development outside of they're being hunted by Freddy Krueger on Elm Street. Like, there's a whole thing with Nancy building kind of Home Alone-esque traps to catch him, but we've not had any build-up to... She's kind of mechanically smart or does this stuff for a hobby or something. Like, what's in um, Some Kind of Wonderful? If she'd done this, I would have gone like, yeah, she's she's shown earlier in the film. She's good with her hands. She can fix up cars and stuff. But suddenly we're, we're supposed to believe this thing that, like, Nancy can, can um, booby trap her house. She read one book and had all of the booby trap knowledge she needed. Yeah. And she did it in less than five minutes. Yeah. Did you notice that, like, continuity issue with she, her she doing the booby traps? I didn't think of it in that way, but you make a very good point. I mean, she's talking to her dad on the phone, and she says, you know, come wake me up in exactly 20 minutes because that's when it'll be exactly, like, 1230 or whatever. And so we know it's 10 after 12 in that moment. Mm. And after she hangs up the phone, that's when she booby traps the house. Mm. And then she looks at her watch because she's about to go to sleep and it's 1220. And I was like, that just doesn't work. (laughs) Yeah, she's just been running around. So like the adrenaline's going to be going. You're not going to go to sleep quickly, surely. Yeah, it didn't make sense to me. But honestly, I have to say, I'm glad there were moments like that in the movie because Mm. I had something else to focus on. Okay. And the, the creepy, scary stuff. Okay. 
So uh, that was actually kind of helpful for me. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything about uh, time moving differently in the dreamscape? I don't think there is, but maybe I missed it. I don't think so. Uh, My notes about that are basically that it's really hard to distinguish between the dream and reality, Mm. which I think was the point. Yes, yeah. Um, There were a few places where I was convinced they were awake, and then all of a sudden you realize they're not. And it, it was hard sometimes to keep straight when it was normal. I mean, when Friday was there, obviously it was a dream. But, you know, when Nancy's just walking down the street, it seems like it's, you know, she just went outside of her house and she's walking down the street. Then that doesn't seem like she's really dreaming. No. And, and then very suddenly at the end, she's able to properly lucid dream because she wants to take him out of the out of the dreamscape. Like there's a big step between her running from him in a dream and then suddenly being like, ah, I know how to think and move and act and control the dream more. Right. There were a lot of logical leaps made in this movie. <laughs> and a lot of, we're just going to give Nancy this knowledge and everything's going to be fine. Yeah. Move along the plot, lads. Right. Um, I think my my feelings about Nancy are Nancy's kind of brave, but a whole lot of stupid. And things like choosing to fall asleep, knowing what's going to happen. Like, she she already knew that Freddie showed up every time she fell asleep, but she still fell asleep in the bathtub. Like, she promised her mom she wouldn't, and then she immediately went to sleep. And there was another time where she she was convinced, and I actually think it was right after the bathtub scene, she convinced her mom she was fine, and then she immediately went and got in bed and went to sleep. And she agreed to the sleep study, and she went to sleep. And I'm like, why are you not fighting back when they're trying to make you sleep? Because you know what's going to happen. And it didn't make sense to me. Yeah. We have her taking the drugs and drinking lots of coffee, but... Eventually, she got there. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you've just reminded me, I did get distracted in the film because her mother does a thing of like, do you know how many people die in bathtubs? Like hundreds of people. It's like, that sounds quite high to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Moms make up statistics all the time. So I went and did some reading. Oh. <laughs> so Matthew, um, tell me, how many people die in bathtubs? Well, in, in, the, in the UK, we have the Office of National T- Statistics. And in the UK, there's about one death a day by drowning. But that's like in swimming pools and bathtubs and all sorts of things. Okay. So that's not high. In the US, obviously, it's more, but it's about the same in scale with uh, population. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. But then I read a really interesting thing that death in bathtubs have risen by 70% over one decade in Japan. So between Why? 2004 and 2014, huge increase in them. And, and there's a number of factors to this. There was a, a, a culture in Japan of in the very hot onsen and completely submerging yourself, so up to your chin. Uh, the design of a traditional Japanese bathtub is a very... Uh, it's a square, effectively, or, or a, a rectangle cut out, so there's none of the slopiness to, to support you as you're right. in it and so on, as well as it's an aging population, so... Maybe it's more likely for an older person to fall asleep or not be able to get themselves out. Okay. But yeah, it was a, it was a big uh, issue, and they started debating it and what they should do about it. Well, I'm glad that that Nightmare on Elm Street inspired <laughs> you to do research about bathtubs. It was better than watching the film. <laughs>
it, it's not a bad film when you put it in the context of the time it was made and the consideration of, of uh, not much had come before it that is in this vein. You know, horror is very much uh, a suspenseful thing before we get to the 80s and these kind of slasher things. And then you suddenly you start reinventing it. And, and then you get into the 90s and you get the postmodernness of Scream and so on. Right. Hmm. I, I think that this movie had a lot of potential to be better than it was. At least to me. Mm. Honestly, the acting in this was awful. I mean, even by 1984 standards, the acting in this was terrible. Yeah. One of the things I noticed was that there wasn't much dialogue to the film. Where in other films I almost expect there to be lots of discussion about what's going on. There's a bit of discussion, but there's not... There is just not as much as I would have expected. And I wonder if that's almost hurt it a little bit. Like, they tried to make it suspenseful and, and put you in the moment rather than taking you out with dialogue and thinking about what people are saying. But it means the actors don't have much to hang off. Right. In in They don't have much to deliver, so it has to come down to how they're reacting to things and how they're doing to things. Maybe the actors weren't quite up to it. Maybe they weren't sure that was what they were going for. And maybe they weren't the right people. I don't... I don't know. I mean, they they shot this movie in 32 days, so I imagine that mm. the screenplay just didn't have a lot of dialogue in it. I think part of it goes back to them trying to do too much. And I think trying to do the jump scares and the gore, you know, you, you can't really have dialogue at the same time you're doing those things. Yeah. And I think... I, I think the movie does suffer for it a little bit because without that dialogue, we don't get that character development that we wanted to see. You know, we don't get to see Nancy really growing and understanding what's happening. And really what we get from Nancy is she learns that they're all having the same dream. And then she decides to keep on sleeping anyway. Whatever. It's fine. And then she decides to not sleep. She reads a book about booby traps. She <laughs> brings the hat back and says, oh, hey, I can bring him back too. And then she says... Oh, I know how to beat him. He's just a dream. He's not real. And then the movie's over. And if there had been dialogue in any of that, I think, you know, we could have probably made some more smooth transitions between all of those things. Yeah. And it it would have been nicer, I think. Yeah, maybe a bit more scene setting. And when I think about the, the, the one actor in this that we have seen in other things, Johnny Depp is a physical actor. He doesn't do much with the words he's delivering. He's very much about how he's performing around other people. When you think about Jack Sparrow or Edward Scissorhands, some of his big roles. Right. Yeah, that's true. I think I honestly didn't pay that much attention to him in this movie because he was fairly useless because <laughs> he had one on job. Yeah. <laughs> Can I tell you some of my favorite things about the film? I want to start saying positive things. And one of them is related to Johnny Depp. Okay. Um, and as much as I say this is a favourite thing, it's a favourite thing because I was just a gape jaw on the floor at Johnny Depp's cut-off shirt <laughs> for half the film. He's wearing what I think is supposed to be a football jersey, but ends <laughs> above his belly button, like completely navel-bearing. It's almost like something like Faith and Buffy would have worn. <laughs> That's funny. Um, I will definitely be putting that... Uh, screenshot of that up on Instagram because it's amazing. It made me very happy. <laughs> I don't know why 
this is a thing, but it is a it's a standard thing for practice jerseys for football to be cropped short. I don't know why it's a thing, but it is. <laughs> really? And so I think that's like not something that would be weird. It, is it supposed to be like big and baggy so it can go over pads? I mean, this is fitted to him, but is that what it's supposed to be? I think it, I thought it was weird to see it without pads on underneath it because that's what I'm used to seeing. But it mm. it didn't really make me think, oh, that's really super weird because I'm accustomed to seeing in like football movies and TV shows okay. and things like that. I'm used to seeing that half cropped practice jersey thing. Yeah, you see the the, the navel bearing shirt. I mean, it does make me think of. Sexy Willow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I totally get says. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Um, uh, alongside that, one of my favourite things is the uh, font used for the title credits. Or, no, not the title credits. The font used for the opening credits. Um, although, you know, Nightmare looks like it's blood dripping down and all this. When they then have the cast coming up over the opening sequence and and the producers and director and so on. It's in a font that I can only describe as fridge magnet alphabet. Okay. I honestly don't remember it. Oh, you're giving me a picture. Yeah. It is it is basically like it's even slightly arranged badly like it's not all lined up. It's like someone's done it on a fridge magnet, taken a photo and then superimposed it. It's kind of like a cross between refrigerator magnets and Comic Sans. Yeah, it's got that kind of thing going on with it. And, and I wonder if it's meant to be, because this is obviously when they're starting the, the rhyme, if, you know, one, two, Freddy's coming for you. So is it meant to be channeling the childishness of it? But it really feels like a student film. I wonder if it's just supposed to be unsettling because the letters aren't in a straight line. The letters are kind of off just a little bit, so maybe... That's what it is. <laughs> I would expect this in some sort of 80s sitcom. You know, bringing up baby. <laughs> <laughs> My two dads. Something like that. Right. Okay. That's totally fair. You don't expect it in Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. So that was my shining light to hang on for these. Um, but I will legitimately want to say that the practical effects do a lot of work in this film, and they're really oh, yes. good. The uh, the rooms that very obviously rotate, they can have that funnel of blood, chun- uh, the, the fountain of blood pouring up into it. Right. The bit where the, the burned mother descends into the bed is a bit schlocky. But actually, the way it then superimposes the bed back in and it's just this portal that's disappeared, it's really quite nice. The the extending arms of Freddy are, are a bit silly because there's no way you can do that and look serious, I think. Right. But but as an image, it's quite good. And then the the way they even do it, that she runs away from him and then runs into him. Do you remember we, t- we spoke about in Superman the movie? The great bit where she says goodbye to Superman, walks to the door and opens it and Clark Kent's there. It's effectively that shot... But with Freddy behind her and then Freddy in front of her. But but Freddy behind her is actually in shadow. So you can't see his face. So it's clearly a stuntman. Right. But I was like, oh, they've actually got him in two places there. That's very nice. Well, I don't actually have favorite moments, but I do have scariest moments. Mm. If that's a thing, which I guess it is for a scary movie. <laughs> um, the, the two things that stuck out to me the most um, were actually both death scenes. 
Tina's death was horrifying. I mm. did not expect to get that particular flavor of horror. It came across as haunting, um, kind of demon-possessed, ghost, poltergeisty. Mm. And I didn't expect that from a monster movie. They're, they're very, two very different things to me. And so when we're watching her being dragged across the ceiling and, and then there's just blood everywhere as she's being flayed while she's being dragged across the ceiling, like that was horrifying to me. I was not okay with it. Yeah, I think that's another example of the upside down room. I think she's actually writhing around in a corner of a room. Maybe. I, I know the room was spinning because she complained about getting vertigo while they were filming okay. it. Okay. Um, but I can't remember if it, if she was on the ceiling or if it was upside down. I know the blood room, uh, Glenn's room, was upside down when they filmed mm. that. Which is my second scariest moment, actually. Fountain of okay. blood. Like, when, when he disappeared through the bed, I was still being really annoyed that he was laying in bed with a television on his lap. <laughs> because that's not a thing people did in 1984 with, like, those big TVs. He's got a I mean, it was a small lap. TV for the stand... <laughs> It was a small TV for the time, but it was giant. This giant box that you know was heavy, and he's just laying in bed with it on his lap. And then he gets sucked into the bed, and that's fine. But then all of a sudden, you get the geyser of blood, and I noped right out of there. And I was like, I'm not okay with this. (laughs) I don't know why, because all it was was blood. You didn't actually see him. Like, Mm. he didn't explode or anything. It was just he disappeared, and then all this blood showed up. But I... It was very unsettling to me, and I was not okay with it. Yeah, I really, I, I, I like exactly as you say the the effect of the room spinning. It, it really adds a weird sense to it. The fact that when once even once the fountain is done, when it gives a shot of the room, the the blood is running sideways on the ceiling. So the room has obviously been rotated on its side at that point. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I didn't actually notice that, but I, I read about it. I think I was just so horrified <laughs> by mm. all of the blood that I wasn't really paying attention, other than also imagining I can't um, – or, or thinking about I can't imagine what it would be like to be that mother walking into that room right then. Yeah. Just – it was just – I didn't like it. I didn't like it. What did you make of the ending, the, the strange thing where she seems to beat him in the dream and then everything's nice, but then he's a car? Like Michael Jackson in Moonwalker. <laughs> okay, so here here are my like real time reactions to the ending, and mm. then I'll give more exposition. But all caps, are you kidding me? And then okay, that ending is a little bit better <laughs> because I was completely disgusted by the idea that there was going to be a happy ending, and that she went through all of this and. All of a sudden, she realized she just had to believe in herself and say, this is a dream and you're not real. And he magically disappears into a cloud of light. And then, boom, everybody's happy. And it never happened. And Tina's alive and Glenn's alive. And I was like, that made me angry that I sat through this movie and experienced all of this horror for it to be completely devalued by that happy ending. I was not okay with that. That's interesting. And it might be just because we've had inception since but i quite liked it like oh this whole thing's been a dream no no i was not okay Okay. with it (laughs) but then we get the car yeah being some kind of like incarnation of freddie and then we get (laughs) freddie taking her mom through the door 
And so then I was like, okay, that ending is a little bit better because at least we know that she didn't actually just wish him away Mm. and like tie it up in a neat little bow. I mean, it's still weird. And it turns out the reason that it's still weird is because that ending is not the ending that Wes Craven wanted or that the studio wanted. It's a weird compromise. Oh, really? Wes Craven wrote a happy ending. It was supposed to be a dream. Okay. And he still maintains to this day that that's how it should have ended. He didn't want there to be sequels. And the studio wanted there to be sequels. And so they wanted, honestly, I don't even remember exactly how they wanted it to end, but they wanted the end to tease the se- the sequel. Okay. And so what they did was they compromised on this sort of dreamlike craziness, but also kind of a happy ending, and you're not really sure what's going on. And I think it just made it weird. But it ended up working for the studio's favor because then they did go on to do so many sequels. But it's just weird. Yeah, it's it's very tonally odd that you suddenly get this big thing of he's a car, and and previously it's been him jumping out and saying boo type type horror, like you say the jump scares and and more suspense, and then we get this big thing of the car locking them in and driving them off laughing. Right. Mm. It it made no sense. Freddie showing up to pull her mom through the door, that made complete sense to me. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I would have felt better if that had happened while the kids were driving off. Mm-hmm. Because then we wouldn't have had that comical car thing going on. And it <laughs> would have still been that scary ending. But that's not the direction they decided to go. So No. I mean, you say it worked for the studio, but this series has not been a money spinner. By any measure, uh, looking at the the list of the franchise, th- this did quite well, making twenty five and a half million off a one point eight million budget. But yeah, I mean this this particular movie made its budget back in three days, mm. and they call this movie um, well, actually they call New Line Cinema they call mm-hmm. that the studio that Freddie built because they were going bankrupt and then this movie happened. Yeah. And 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 so I think it, it was a commercial success, but I think it spawned more of that cult status that keeps spurring those sequels. Yeah, it's really funny because I, you know, how you associate certain films with the the production companies. Like when the yes. Universal logo comes up, I always think of Jurassic Park, and the HBO logo, I always think of Entourage. The New Line logo, I always think of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I do not think of Nightmare on Elm Street. I don't actually associate Lord of the Rings with any studio. I just associate it with the song and Peter Jackson. Okay. Well, I have lots of associations with Lord of the Rings. But when I see the New Line logo, that's the film that I think is about to start. Okay. Well, is there anything else that we need to discuss about Nightmare on Elm Street? Well, talking of the franchise, there are eight other films in this film series. So that's going to take us a lot of podcasts to get through. Do you want to watch any of them? (laughs) Uh, no. Okay, actually, that's not entirely true. I kind of want to see the 2010 remake. Okay. Because I want to see what it would look like with the digital effects and the acting and mm. and the visuals that I'm accustomed to seeing from, like, a mm-hmm. modern movie. So I, I'm kind of interested to see that, but at the same time, I'm scared and don't want to. Okay. They... Uh, I do know one of the things they do is they restore him as a child molester as well as a child murderer. Oh. So there is an element of that in it. It's a harder story. 
So you might want to watch the new one. You're not sure about the others. I mean, because this is a franchise that goes to a weird place. Because the, the subsequent films are called things like Dream Warriors, Dream Master, Dream Child. Like, it's about them fighting him with powers and stuff. <laughs> it goes to a really strange place. I am sort of interested in uh, the third one. Only because the third one is Kristen Russo's favorite movie from Buffering the Vampire Slayer podcast. And she talks about okay. it a lot. And she talks about how Patricia Arquette's scream in that movie is like the best acting scream of all time. And that okay. kind of makes me want to watch it. But at the same time, not really. <laughs> so that's where I am on that. So maybe not. Maybe not. Okay. Maybe the new one next year. Maybe. Okay. I, I did enjoy. He did one called New Nightmare, or it's called. In fact, it's called Wes Craven's New Nightmare. And, and again, it's the, the scream idea of being very knowing and very understanding of the tropes of it, because it is about Heather, who played Nancy, and Robert Eglund and Wes Craven. Oh right, she plays herself, right? Yeah, and um, because they are not making Freddy films anymore. Freddy is becoming an actual thing because he can't live in the movies and trying to take them over. <laughs> and it's like properly weird in this world and the dream world and the world of the movies. And like, I like that idea. So cool. Have you seen it? I have. I can remember watching it on television and I can remember liking the idea, but I, I, I think I can only remember the end of it being super weird. Okay. Yeah. And then, of course, okay. that's followed up by Freddy vs. Jason, which is an amazing film. <laughs> and I think I, mainly I gave it a 10 out of 10 because, uh, well, this was back in the time when I used to rate films, but I couldn't find any fault with it. Like, it's not a good film, necessarily. Not like in the way I talk about The Godfather or American Beauty or something, but it has no flaws. It does everything it needs to do, and it does it perfectly. Okay. Yeah. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but I've I've never seen any of the Jason movies, so okay, okay. Um, yeah, I I don't really want to because he he chases people with a chainsaw, right? Uh, no, he's the machete in the hockey mask. The Friday Thirteenth film series is twelve movies. No, so we'd have like twenty episodes of the podcast of us watching these two films, so we could watch one film. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> there was also the the tenth film was also Jason X, which sounds like some sort of you know white rapper or something. But it's also is also quite a good film because it's sci fi Friday the Thirteenth. <laughs> <laughs> it's not okay. bad. I remember enjoying that because there's a whole bit where they go into a hollow deck, and the hollow deck is the camp that he the first film is set on. I think. And I think he even picks up the, the the topless blonde in her sleeping bag and starts slamming her on the ground. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Not your film, I think. No. Okay. <laughs> so I think I'm ready to stop talking about scary movies now and move on to something that's going to make me feel better. Okay. So we have had some listener feedback on previous episodes. And you guys know this is my favorite part of the show, especially on this episode, because like my heart is not super okay right now just from talking about Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> so thank you for those of you who have given us feedback. And the first thing is from Vivian. Uh, she is at Slayers, the on Twitter. 
And in response to our Some Kind of Wonderful episode, she said that I am not alone in my feelings about this movie, and she is glad that hashtag Team No One is taking off. Yeah, I think both that and Pretty in Pink, that that would have been a very acceptable ending. Nah, I'm still Team Blaine and and, uh, Pretty in Pink. Sorry. And then in response to our Blade Runner episode, we had Notorious J.A.F. at Generosity say that she definitely yelled primary values at her phone while she was listening to me, you, and Joshua talk about Blade Runner. And I'm glad somebody came up with that because I could not for the life of me remember what Lonnie called it. And we also had an email from Lauren at Six Legged Knits who said that uh, about the Blade Runner episode. She says that she, she thinks what Blade Runner needs is an electric sheep. Uh, the first and most obvious difference is that the film and the book show, well, the book particularly shows a lot more of Deckard's home life. There's a whole thing in the film of he's divorced or he's just alone, depending on which version of the film. But in the book, he has a wife. She's named Iran. And they have this whole thing of people having a pet, an electric sheep, uh, a very realistic sheep, but a sheep that's still a robot. And the reason it's important is that the electric sheep gives Deckard a goal. He doesn't take the bounty hunter work because he has to or whatever reason they, they give him the film. He does it to earn money to buy a real animal for himself and especially his wife. The reason Lauren thinks that's so important is in the book there's never any doubt of his humanity. He cares enough to want more, but the electric sheep is also important because it gives him a goal, something to work for, instead of androids having something to work for and Deckard just getting in the way. So it makes him the protagonist. He is doing this job to earn money to be able to provide for his family, even if providing a a fake sheep. Okay. I think that's all very interesting, but it doesn't make me want to read the book anymore than I did before. Um, She closes off by saying that uh, it removes the ambiguity in his status and Ridley Scott was so convinced he was a replicant that perhaps all that empathy wasn't possible. I think that if the question is, what does it mean to be a human, which is uh, the movie, what the question the movie is trying to ask and the, the question the book definitely does, you can't have every character be of questionable humanity. In the book, he is decidedly human for all his flaws. He provides one side of the equation in which the renegade androids are the other side and Rachel is in the middle. She would not seem so human except compared to them, nor so inhuman compared to him. Which is a really nice take, actually giving us three different aspects on it. Yeah. Hmm. And I wonder if also I'm bringing some of the the sort of modern conception of a sheep. You know, sheeple and following the herd and doing the same as everyone else. And I wonder if that's some of the implication of people owning a sheep. I don't think so. But (laughs) I could could be wrong. I don't know anything. No, me neither. (laughs) Okay. Well, if you'd like to have your thoughts featured in this segment, you can use the hashtag PCDeprived on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at EloquentGushing. You can also email us using podcast at EloquentGushing.com, or you can leave us a voice message at SpeakPipe.com slash EloquentGushing. You can find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy K. And I'm at Matthew Vose. Pop Culture Deprived is 100% funded by listeners like you through our Patreon page. Anything you can give gives access to exclusive content and also helps to support the network and help us deliver our other shows. I've just launched a show called Across the Arrowverse about the DC shows Supergirl, Arrow, Flash and Legends of Tomorrow. So go check that out as well. And to find out more about the Patreon, go to patreon.com eloquentgushing. Don't forget we have a weekly newsletter as well. 
There's a link on our homepage, eloquentgushing.com, that gives you up-to-date information about all the latest news and announcements with the network. We'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where we'll talk about Oscar with our friend Carrie. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And I know the secret now. This is just a dream too. Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, visit eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing.